And we're going to look this morning at the reading we had just now from Zechariah chapter 4, thinking in particular of those wonderful words in verse 6, Not by might nor by power, but by my Spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Let me ask you a question. I don't expect any answers. Have you ever felt discouraged? Are you feeling discouraged at the moment? There are all sorts of things, aren't there, that can cause us to be discouraged. I wonder, are you discouraged about your own spiritual life? Are you saying, well, I'm not really as, as close to the Lord as I would want to be? I don't feel his nearness as much as I should. Maybe my prayer life isn't what it ought to be. Maybe I don't feel I'm effective in, in serving the Lord. We can easily be discouraged by our own spiritual condition. We can be discouraged by the state of the church, locally, our own church. Are we saying, are we feeling discouraged? Oh, if only we had more people here. If only we could reach out to people. If only people would listen to us. No one seems to be interested. We don't seem to be making inroads into the community. And we can be discouraged. What about the church nationally? In Wales, in the UK, we look around and we don't see many large, thriving churches. We don't see a lot of people turning to the Lord and we can become discouraged. Or then, how big is your vision? On the global sphere, we look around the world and we can see dreadful things happening to Christians in, in many countries. We see great persecution. We see great opposition. We see great deprivation. We don't hear of many places where, although thankfully there are some, where God is at work and pouring out his spirit and many are coming to know the Lord. All of these things can easily cause us to be discouraged. We may argue that we are living in the day of small things. God doesn't seem to be doing great things amongst us. And how do we respond to that? Well, that was really Zerubbabel's problem. I'll probably get that name wrong at least twice during this sermon because it's a bit of a tongue twister, Zerubbabel. I'll tell you who he was in a moment. But his problem was discouragement. Now, Zerubbabel, don't know how much you know Old Testament history, he was the governor of Judea immediately after the return from exile. He was the governor because he was the grandson of King Jehoiakim, the king in Jerusalem who had been taken captive by Nebuchadnezzar into Babylon prior to the exile. So his grandson was now the rightful leader of the country, wasn't called a king, he was called a governor, and his main job was to oversee the rebuilding of the temple after the return from exile. Now, the people returned from Babylon in 537 BC, and they immediately got on with building the temple. Remember, Nebuchadnezzar and his armies had destroyed it in 586 BC. It was left without one stone upon another. And so the people returned, and they were keen to rebuild the temple that they might worship God there again. And to begin with, they, they got on well. They laid the foundations. But then the work stopped. For a number of reasons, the people grew discouraged, and they worked less, and then the work stopped. By now, in Zechariah chapter 4, it's 520 BC. 
17 years after they started laying those foundations. And Zerubbabel, the governor, was discouraged. He was thinking things like this. Would that temple ever be rebuilt? How can I motivate these people who started so well to get back to the work of building again? They've, they've given up. They've abandoned the project. Is there any hope of this temple which he knew God had called them to rebuild? Is there any hope of it ever being rebuilt? It was then that God spoke to him through the prophet Zechariah. And in the words of our text in verse 6, he said to encourage him, This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. In other words, what he said was, the obstacles to rebuilding the temple would not be overcome by the usual means, might, power, strength, and so on, but by the work of God's Spirit. We'll see later on how that actually worked out. But when that word came to Zerubbabel, that was enough for his discouragement to turn into encouragement. It's as if the penny dropped, as if he suddenly realised, ah, it's not all about me. It's not down to me and my work. It is God's work. And God will see to it. Yes, he's given me an important role to play and I must play that role well, but it is God's work. And as we see from verse 10, there's that wonderful promise there that the day of small things will turn into a day of rejoicing. And if we this morning are feeling that we are discouraged, that we are in a day of small things, then let's take that promise and I trust that we may go out rejoicing, knowing that the work of building the church is God's work. So, let's break this down a little more in this chapter. First thing I'd like us to notice is the message. The message that we have in verses 1 to 6. Now, Zechariah was a man who was prone to having visions. In the prophecy of Zechariah, there are eight different visions. And this is the fifth one that we've got here. I'll describe it to you. You can follow it if your Bible is in front of you and see if you can picture what Zechariah was giving to Zerubbabel in this vision from the Lord. He saw a golden lampstand. That golden lampstand had a bowl on top. There were seven lamps on it and there were seven lips on each lamp. Either side was an olive tree, and the olive tree on either side was providing oil for the lamps. Now, the lampstand, of course, would have been familiar to Zechariah. He would have been aware of the menorah in the temple. Remember that golden candlestick, the menorah in the temple there, which was a seven-branched lampstand, which in the temple was a symbol of the Messiah who was to come, bringing light to the world. And now, of course, it's a symbol of modern Israel. Now, that lampstand in the temple needed priests to guard it day and night to keep it alight. It must never go out. So, to keep it alight, you had to have priests there to put the oil in and to, to keep it going. But this light, in Zechariah's vision here, the light would never go out. 
there was a constant flow of oil to the lamps. Now, what's the symbolism going on here? Oil is very often used in the Bible as a symbol of the Holy Spirit. The lampstand is often a picture of a church. Think of Revelation chapters 1 to 3 and the letters there to the seven churches and the seven lampstands. They were the churches. And the vision is all about light, about a light that will never go out, light shining. So the message really is simply this, that the job of God's people, nowadays the church, is to bring the light of Jesus to the world by the power of the Holy Spirit. Remember, Jesus said, I am the light of the world. His light never goes out, it never fades. And so our task, as those who belong to the church of Jesus Christ, is to be involved in the work of building the church by bringing the light of Jesus to those who are in darkness in the power of the Holy Spirit. You see, verse 6 is the key verse. We cannot do this on our own, just as the rubber bell could not get the temple built by himself. Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. As the rubber bell needed the spirit to complete the building of the temple, so we need the spirit for our task of bringing the light of Jesus to the world. That really was the message that was being given here. But secondly, I want us to note the mountain. There's a mountain referred to in verse 7. Who are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel you shall become a plain. He shall bring forward the top stone amid shouts of grace, grace to it. Zerubbabel faced a mountain. Now this wasn't a physical mountain. This was a mountain of problems. In order to get that temple rebuilt, so Rubabel was facing a huge mountain of problems and it's that that led him to be very discouraged. It's as if everything were getting on top of him. You see, the people were discouraged, which led them to give up and then all sorts of things were going on in the land at the same time. There were enemies all around. There were those who were determined the temple should not be built, and they were making their voices and their actions very well known. They were surrounded by enemies. There were poor harvests. The people had very little to eat. The economic situation was dire. They were in a mess. The people on top of that were being disobedient to God and weren't do, doing what he said they ought to be doing. So from Zerubbabel's position, how could he ever finish rebuilding the temple? I'd like you to think for a moment. Aren't those problems similar to the ones that we face in building God's church? Problems that can come from both Christians and non-Christians alike? What are some of the problems that we face in seeking under God to build his church in our land in these days? Well, isn't a big one discouragement? We can easily get down in the work when we see within the day of small things. Not many people are being reached. Not many are becoming Christians. We can be discouraged. Apathy from non-Christians who just aren't interested. And even from Christians who feel like giving up 
I don't feel like witnessing anymore or telling anyone about the Lord because nothing ever seems to happen. Is it even worth going to the prayer meeting? Uh, there are Christians who even get to that state where they think, I don't really think it's worth praying anymore because God doesn't appear to be answering. And then there's opposition. Opposition from outside, those who think the church is antiquated, prehistoric, antediluvian and all the rest of it and has no relevance to life today. And then even Christians as well within churches who are opposing what may be going on. Oh, you made that change. Don't agree with that. That's wrong. I don't agree with you on that particular point of doctrine or the way you may do this. And as I've been around a number of churches recently, I would say that that is one of the devil's main tactics today to get Christians in churches complaining about other things in the church that are at best secondary issues and at worst 20th issues or whatever it may be. Minor points that become major points that can end up in the church losing its effectiveness as a witness. Then there was disobedience. And we see that as well, don't we? Even amongst ourselves in these days, we're not always walking with the Lord as we should be. John Stott, who knew a bit about church life, wrote this on one occasion. He said, The Christian's chief occupational hazards are depression and discouragement. And that was written by a man who knew, of course, enormous blessing in his life, in his own church, and in fact in churches around the world. But he could say this, the Christian's chief occupational hazards are depression and discouragement. On the other hand, take a quote from that great evangelist George Whitfield. Whitfield said, let us never despair while we have Christ as our leader. So put those two together and what's it telling us? We will face discouragement, but don't let it become despair. In other words, don't let discouragement win. Don't let it become despair so we feel like giving up and just not going on anymore. Because the great encouragement is, in verse 10 here, that the day of small things will turn to rejoicing. Look at verse 10. Whoever has despised the day of small things, thinking it's a waste of time, shall rejoice. The day of small things will turn to rejoicing. And note that is in the context of verse 6. Because it's in the day of small things, particularly when God chooses to act. It was true with Zerubbabel. They had come back from exile with great rejoicing and with great hope and plans for a great future. And within a few years, I could all turn to discouragement and apathy and resignation and, and almost giving up. The day of small things. But God delights in the day of small things to work that small things become big things. Think about that in the natural world. We've got two very large oak trees uh, by the side of the house where we live. And yet they began with a very, very little tiny acorn. And as we know, great oaks grow from tiny acorns. Think of rivers. Think of Wales' largest river, the River Wye. Go there to the Severn Bridge and the River Wye is a, a wide, fast-flowing river. 
track it back about 150 miles to the hills outside Aberystwyth in Plinlimon, and there's a very, very tiny trickle just coming out of the ground. And that tiny trickle in 150-odd miles has become a wide, fast-flowing river. And so we could multiply that. But think about it as well in the spiritual world. Think about it in the Bible and in church history. Let me just give you a few examples. That great exodus from Egypt that so determined the future history of Israel started with a baby in a basket. The greatest period in Israel's history under King David started with a shepherd boy and a sling. Paul's great missionary journeys would never have happened without a basket and a rope to allow him to escape from Damascus. Think of church history. That great event in church history, the Reformation, started with one man putting a notice on a church door. Think of the modern missionary movement. Started with one man, a shoemaker, William Carey, boarding a ship to India. Think of the great revival in Wales in 1904 that had worldwide effects and transformed this land. I don't want to be too simplistic, but you could well argue it began when one man prayed, O oh Lord, bend me. So never despise the day of small things. Don't be discouraged by small things, because that is when God delights to work to bring great things from the small things. So that was the mountain, the problems, the obstacles, the difficulties. We've seen the message, we've seen the mountain. Thirdly, the method. How is the rubber bell actually to build the temple? And from that, how are we to be involved in building the church? Again, verse 6 is the key. Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. It is not by human strength, it is by the spirit. Think of those words for a minute. What's the difference between might and power? It's clearer in the Hebrew than it is in the English. That word for might there means the strength of many people, like a, an army, the strength of an army. The word power refers to the strength of an individual. So it's saying whether you are seeking to build the church by lots of people or by individuals who are very strong and very powerful, the point is both are limited in what can be achieved. But by my spirit is limitless because it is the work of God and not of man. In a sense, this at least partially reflects how we may be attempting to do the work of God. There are three main ways in which churches can operate. One is we do it in our own strength and our own wisdom. And we think, oh, we can do this. We can build this church. We can preach. We can go out and reach people. We can organise this, that and the other, and it'll be great. Our own strength and wisdom, severely limited. Or it may be by borrowing the ideas, the strategies, and the resources of the world. Saying, if those sort of things work out there, well, I'm sure they'll work in the church. So, let's try that. Or, we can depend on the power 
of God. Now, I'm not saying that those three are not mutually exclusive. We can have bits of our own strength and wisdom, they are needed. We can have bits of what may be effective out there in the world and apply it to the church. But unless we do that depending on the power of God, they will never be effective. You see, the the Apostle Paul was well aware of this. When Paul wrote about himself in 2 Corinthians 12 and verses 8 and 9, remember that Paul had what he called a thorn in the flesh. He had a, a physical problem. Many people think it was his eyesight. And he had prayed three times for God to sort it out, and and he hadn't. And he says three times, I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. Why? For my power is made perfect in weakness. Indeed, when Paul came to the church in Corinth, he wrote in 1 Corinthians 2, verses 3 and 4, I was with you in weakness and in fear, and in much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. What was Paul aware of? His own weakness, his own frailty, but the power of God infusing that weakness and frailty gave strength for the preaching of the gospel and the building of the church by my Spirit. What can the Spirit do? Now, I'm just going to give you a very, very brief, superficial outline of some of the things the New Testament tells us a Spirit can do. And all I'm going to do is mention the verbs. And just take these in for a moment. What can the Spirit do for us? What can the Spirit do in helping us build the church? Here goes. We read, he encourages, he comforts, He strengthens, he helps, he convinces and convicts, he leads, he guides, he teaches, he commands, he forbids, he revives, he intercedes, and we go on to see that he reveals Jesus, he gives life, he gives power, he gives assurance of faith, he gives gifts, he gives the words to speak, and we could go on. The Holy Spirit is our greatest resource. By using the power of the Spirit, as it were, in the work that we are seeking to do for God, by depending on Him and relying on Him, He gives us all those things that we of ourselves totally lack. He is our greatest resource. What did He do for Zerubbabel? Verse 7 tells us, Before Zerubbabel you shall become a plain, that mountain of problems and of difficulties and of obstacles became a plain. It was flattened out. The mountains were flattened. Verse 9 tells us, the hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this house. His hands shall also complete it. He will finish this work. And he did. It took just four years By 515 BC, that temple was completed, and it lasted for nearly 500 years. Now, how did that happen? How did God's Spirit accomplish that? It's recorded in the book of Ezra, chapters 5 and 6. We read there were people there in Judea who were opposed to the building of the temple. They didn't want it built. 
And they sent a message then to the emperor saying, look, these Jews, they're, they're seeking to rebuild this temple. Stop them from doing it. And then the emperor then sent and looked in his archives and so on. And this was Darius. He saw that his predecessor, Cyrus, had previously given an edict that when the Jews returned to Jerusalem, they were to rebuild their temple. And what is more, that the Babylonians then were to provide them with all the resources they needed for completing the temple. Darius, who was a Mede, was now the emperor in charge of the empire. He discovered that edict that his predecessor had given. So he replied to these people in Judea saying, these people must build the temple because it was decreed by Cyrus. Remember, these are unbelievers. They're not people who are Jews. They weren't God-fearers. And what's more, he said, they also have all the resources they need for building the temple. Let me know. My men will provide. And also they are to be protected from their enemies while they build it. And so to build the temple of God, they were given all the resources of what was then the Median Empire. They were given the protection of the emperor in order to build that church. When that came to Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel sold that to the people, boy, did that change them. What an encouragement. We can do it. The enemies aren't going to stop us. We're not going to be short of materials. We've got all that we want. And they had a heart then to build, and that temple was rebuilt in four years. How did that happen? Really, in the most unlikely way. It was the work of the Spirit. It was the Spirit causing Cyrus and then Darius, the emperors, to say that that temple should be rebuilt with the resources to do it and all the things that Nebuchadnezzar had taken from there, the treasures taken to Babylon, were to be returned as well to the temple and they were to be given protection. Human strength, human might, human wisdom, politics, negotiations would never have achieved that. But God's Spirit did it very quickly. And so that work was continued and finished in the next four years. What are we to do then in building the church of God? Well, there was another prophet at the same time as Zechariah, Haggai. They were both prophets in Judea immediately after the return from exile. And they were both giving the same message about rebuilding the temple and about serving God in doing it. And Haggai said to Zerubbabel about rebuilding the temple, Be strong, O Zerubbabel. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. My spirit remains in your midst. Fear not. How are we to build God's church? In the same way. We are to work. We are to do those things that we are able to do. We are to preach. It is by our words. It's by our actions. It's by our prayers. We are to be involved. We are to work. Remembering that God says, I am with you. We are not doing it alone. My spirit remains in your midst fear not. So why are we sometimes afraid to witness to someone, to tell someone about the Lord, to reach out? What do we have to fear when the Spirit is in our midst and God is with us? 
We are to work to build God's church through the means that we have at our disposal, knowing the Lord is with us in the power of his Spirit. That means we have no need for gimmicks. And whatever we do for the Lord is so much more effective in the power of the Spirit. But remember Jesus' words. He said, I will build my church. It is God's work to build his church, but we are his co-workers. Could there be a greater privilege than that? For God to use the likes of you and me to be his co-workers in building the church in the place where he has put us. In Clidach for you, where I am, he has given us that great privilege of being co-workers. And as co-workers, he gives us all the resources that we may need for the job that he has given us to do. We don't all have the same job to do. We're not all preachers. We're not all missionaries. Many people, the job they are given to do is to be intercessors for that work. For others, it is serving. For others, it is chatting one-on-one -on -one with people. Whatever it may be, however we are called upon, we have the resources at our disposal by the Spirit to be effectively God's co-workers in building his church. What a privilege and what a responsibility. So what do we need to do? We need to pray that we may be filled with the Spirit. That those who minister publicly will be filled with the Spirit. That God would use each one of us in his strength to bring the light of Jesus to the world where we live and by so doing contribute to the building of the church. It's not by might nor by power but by my spirit. And when we realize that and fully grasp it, then our discouragement can turn to encouragement. When the day of small things can turn to a day of rejoicing and of great things. So I trust this morning that if we've come in discouraged, we may leave encouraged, knowing that it is God's work that we're involved with. He equips us, He provides. And we have that great privilege of working together with God for the building of his church in the place where he has put us. Not by what we do, but by his spirit.